0: What's going on, everybody? Connor here with Self Storage Income. Uh, This episode today is fantastic. Scott shares a ton of amazing information. We get a ton of questions from you guys regarding boat and RV storage. So you guys are going to love this. But first, we've got to jump into our sponsors here. First off, we've got Live Oak Bank. Uh, Live Oak, obviously, as you guys know, we've talked about them a lot. They no storage, which is awesome for your partner as far as your financing goes. Uh, we actually were just talking to Terry Campbell over there at Live Oak Bank recently, and they've got some really awesome SBA loan incentives going on. And uh, Terry said that right now, between now and September 30th, the SBA way SBA fees are actually waived. Um, he said that there's a formula for these fees, but a rough rule of thumb is around 2.75% of the loan amount for a 7A loan. And then on the 504 Uh, They're waived as well. There's not as much savings uh, with the 504 as far as the fee savings, but they are waived as well as far as the fees go. Tons of really amazing things going on over there at Live Oak Bank, so be sure to get in touch with them. Links in the show notes. Uh, Next up, obviously, as you guys know, we've got Janus International Fantastic company. We've done a lot of projects with them, a lot of really amazing solutions in the forefront of the technology in the storage industry as far as access. Uh, Janice obviously has their no key keyless access entry system uh, that allows tenants to rent access, all of that without ever talking to a manager, which is amazing. It's an amazing feature. It's an incredible feature for you as well to be able to track tenant movement, to be able to identify any kind of trends as far as move-ins, move-outs, any of that kind of stuff. Having that data to utilize is extremely important. So uh, check them out, Janice International. Links in the show notes as well. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Super excited.
1: We'll see you there. Looking to create wealth and income through high-cash-flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're gonna discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self Storage Income. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. I am super excited about today's podcast. This is a podcast that is needed to happen for quite some time because of all of the questions that we get about boat and RV storage. Um, this podcast that we have, we're very fortunate to have my friend Scott Ramser on today, and we're going to have, we're going to have a conversation of someone that I believe is the best in the industry at this um, and at this niche, and he's done it in a way that I don't know of other people that are doing doing it this way at all. So this is going to be an important one that you guys need to listen to, and it'll really open up your eyes. With that said, we're not going to waste any time. We're not going to delay. We'll just bring him right in. Scott, how's it going?
2: AJ, it's great to be here. Thank you
1: thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. This is a a world that is so interesting to me that you're in because it's self-storage. But, you know, you do it in a little different way than most self-storage operators do. And you've been very successful at it.
2: Well, we've, uh, we've been doing it for a little over 25 years. And, uh, the boat and RV storage business has has morphed into something that originally when we would put a chain link fence and some gravel down on a outdoor parking lot and delineate some spaces and put ten padlocks on a gate, you know, it has become a significantly more disciplined scenario. And really what made it disciplined, AJ, was overlaying the processes and p- procedures from the self-storage industry. I remember when we put in our first keypad access g- access gate, and um, it provided a whole new level of discipline, both from a tenant standpoint, where if they didn't pay, they couldn't get in, as well as a security standpoint, where really we were able to control the access into the facilities. So when we first started in the business, we were doing 100% outdoor Self park facilities. And the first one that I got involved with was down in Lake Forest, which is a city in um, central coastal Orange County. And we had a 22 acre site. It was a class two CMB base material that was placed on the site. We overlaid it with some oil material and we were able to stripe it. And we had 1,300 parking spaces outdoor that we were able to have people self-park in, and we had that facility for a little over 20 years right here in the heart of Orange County, and it was an amazing learning experience as well as a great operating property for that period of time.
1: So, you know, it's so interesting, especially how the space has evolved, but what brought you into the space? Like, why did you ever even, I mean, were you in real estate? Like, how'd you, how'd you stumble in to this world of, you know, storage, but also that niche?
2: Well, I originally started my company in 1986 and we were building concrete tilt up industrial buildings up in downtown Los Angeles. And a friend of mine Um, had a management contract on the RV storage project that I just mentioned down in Lake Forest. And he needed some capital to continue that operation and expand the business and we provided that capital. And over a period of time, we took over the entire business from him and we managed that asset and then we started building additional facilities. So it was really through the 90s and into the beginning of the 2000s where we scrapped all of our other assets and got out of them, which were mostly concrete tilt-up industrial buildings, and we went into the storage, the RV and boat storage business full-time in 2003. And in in 2003, we developed a 400-space outdoor parking lot in the city of Santa Ana, that was a 55 year ground lease with Southern California Edison. And we still have that property today. And then over time, we added additional parking facilities to it. In 2006, a friend of mine called me and had a 350,000 square foot metal building on 22 acres in the city of Brea, which is a North Orange County property and, or city. And, uh, he said, you know, hey, can you do something with this? My tenant went bankrupt. You know, the economy was starting to get really funny in 2006. And he said, I've got a loan with Bank of America. I've got to do something with this building. So I went in and I told him, I said, yeah, I can do something. And we created a joint venture. And I created, for me, the first indoor-outdoor RV and boat storage facility. So we did self-parking initially inside the 380,000-foot building, and then we also had self-parking, RV and boat storage parking on the outdoor portion. So that facility was about 1,200 total parking spaces, and we were able to save that asset for that owner through the recession, and then he was able to sell it um, in about 2011 for a huge number to a guy that, tore down the property and built an industrial building. So wow. we morphed into more and more of those type of assets. We did a, uh, with the same partner, we did a 27 acre deal with 300,000 square feet of building down in Mission Viejo. I did a joint venture with um, Larry Kelly up in Sacramento and we have a 250,000 square foot indoor parking facility along with self-storage so as time went along it became more and more apparent that if we wanted to expand our portfolio we were going to have to get into the self-storage business as well because rv and boat storage deals were so hard to find and you know i could find one about every five years but it wasn't something that i could do all the time so we started morphing into the self-storage business i got involved with store local And that helped us overlay the disciplines that they had in self-storage onto our RV and boat storage business, as well as helped us expand into self-storage as well. But um, at one point up in this Brea project that I described, it became apparent that we could start renting spaces on a valet basis. So we now have two properties. That are a hundred percent valet RV and boat storage. So, in and those how big are these
1: properties? Because like some of these properties you're talking about are huge, and it's interesting yeah. because it's they're like a blank slate, right? Just a massive empty warehouse or a massive, you know. 15 acres or whatever that is. And there's, you know, itself. So people are just coming in, they're parking, they have their rental, they have their gate code, and then they're leaving. Now, what you're talking about on the valet, this is a big change in as far as operations go. This is a big shift in a way of thinking. Were they the same size or did you go smaller at first for that?
2: Well, what we did initially is we had an existing self-parked facility, both inside and outside. And we wanted to create more revenue. And the easiest way to do that was to create a valet parking scenario where we could increase the number of vehicles in the same amount of space. So if we had a section of that building where we had 200 vehicles parked, we then parked 310 vehicles in that same area under the valet storage scenario and we initially we charged the same rate for self-parking as we did for valet parking but we got more you know we got a third you know actually 50 percent more space
1: yeah so and and how is that because you're parking them closer together because you don't have to worry you've you've got they're right
2: up they're right up next to each other they're butt to butt and, you know, normally when you have a self-parking facility, the, 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 the spaces need—the longer the vehicle, the wider the space. So we had spaces that were up to 14 feet wide for a self park 40-foot spot. And then your aisle needs to be a little bit wider if you have big vehicles. So you go from 28 to 30 to 32-foot wide aisleways, and then you have less vehicle per square foot of space, in the valet parking facility they're parked right up against each other and we park it the tenant doesn't park it the tenant stages it in an area and then leaves and then we grab the vehicle and we park it either with a forklift on a trailer or my guys go ahead and get into the vehicle and park it at you know park it in the close area that we're talking about and obviously your labor is going to go up because you are going to have more gonna, you have more employees
1: yeah, yeah, uh, but okay, we got to unpack a few things here. So, when you're saying valet, the uh, the person's bringing an RV to the location, just leaves it, but they're just there's a holding kind of area. Then your employee goes, gets it, and takes it indoors. Correct? That's correct. Okay, and now you mentioned a forklift. What are you doing with a forklift?
2: Well, the forklift has a trailer hitch on it. And you lift up the trailer, and then with the forklift in the front, you have the ability to really maneuver a trailer and get it into a tight spot.
0: Uh So we're able to get
2: a lot more trailers into an area than we could with a self-parking facility. Now, we're still in the self-parking business. We have several facilities that are 100% self-parking, but in the more urban or suburban areas where real estate is dear and people have really nice vehicles that they want to take care of, but inside especially, we have found that the valet storage scenario really, really works.
1: Yeah. Now, now, walk me through after you, you have an increase with the valet side because of, um, I'm sure, insurance went up and then obviously the big one um your employment situation. Uh but when you got done transferring the self-parking to valet parking with the additional spaces, then I'm assuming you eventually charged higher rates. uh, Did that work out to end up being much more profitable for you?
2: Yes, it did. And we were able to, you know, keep the labor costs in control while significantly increasing the valet parking rates so when we first started doing this 12 years ago we were charging about 50 cents a square foot in Orange County for an indoor self-parking space so that rate was what we charged as well in Orange County and now that rate is up to $1.50 for an indoor valet parking space.
0: Wow, that's a pretty good spread. So, yeah, that's a pretty it, good it,
2: it, it's, a, it's a great spread, and but, you know, in Orange County, the outdoor parking has gone up as well, and that's up to a dollar a square foot for an outdoor parking space in Orange County. So we've hit we've had a huge amount of increase in both indoor and outdoor parking rates in Southern California because of the lack of facilities. I personally have shut down almost 5000 parking spaces in Orange County through properties that I had and operated some owned some were joint ventures and we and they have left the market so the ability the supply, the supply of of parking in Orange County for RVs and boats has dwindled you know considerably yeah. therefore we've had a significant rise in price and the same thing has happened out in the inland empire i mean every little funky infill property that used to have you know some sort of weird third party use whether it was rv and boat storage or container storage or whatever has been redeveloped into an apartment complex townhomes industrial building at a much higher and better use therefore this you know the ability to do rv and boat storage in orange county has been significantly impaired. So a lot of that has moved out to the Inland Empire. And, uh, you know, we had a deal, at the, the, this one deal up in Brea we had, um, public storage had a site very nearby. And a couple of years into our, our occupancy, public storage shut down 250 RVs that they had parked on their site, and they built a three-story, 120,000-square-foot expansion on that property. So we got all 250 wow. of those tenants. And you know, what we have seen in the suburban areas here is that RV and boat storage has mostly been removed for buildings to be built and a lot of self-storage guys have taken out the site parking and have built additional buildings usually on a multi-level basis to increase, you know, significantly the density and the square footage of their facilities.
1: So um well that's what that's what we do. I mean we've done that at multiple facilities. We've had parking and we took all the parking uh, parking out and built buildings. Um which is interesting when you when you look at because one of the things that it, it gets, at least for us, you know, where if you're in more of a rural market, but uh where there's not as much regulation, we see This shift in land prices have risen across the board so high, but yet maybe demand's not as much. So it can be harder to make outdoor parking pencil. Um, But with the same token...
2: You need to have some drivers. What's driving that demand? You know, if you're in Fresno, California... You know, there's a lot of demand for RV and boat storage in Fresno because it's a gateway to Yosemite. You know, you have Lake Mead down in Las Vegas. That's a gateway into a recreation area. So there's a lot of really cool RV and boat storage places that kind of congregate down in kind of southeast Las Vegas where you have access into Lake Mead. And clearly you have that with the Pacific Ocean and you know, the river, um, but shit, there's, excuse me, there's this property down at Lake Havasu that I looked at in 2012 and I actually had it under contract to purchase for 2.8 million. It was this indoor self park RV and boat storage facility on Lake Havasu. Well, 2012, we really weren't out of the recession yet. And I ended up having to pass on the deal. Well, Luke Elliot and Mike Mealy just sold it for $9.8 million. And, you know, that's only nine years ago. And it's yeah. a, you know, it's a 4X deal in nine years. I mean, that that's pretty good. So yeah, one, of the, one of the interesting things is that RV and boat storage income has become a lot more acceptable to lenders, and they understand that it's a reasonably secure income stream, and they're willing to underwrite it and provide loans on it. When I first tried to get a loan on that deal I developed in Santa Ana in 2003, I had a lot of trouble finding a lender that understood an outdoor self-park RV and boat storage facility on a 55-year ground lease. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think that's been kind of the... The case with just lenders in general over the years, um, just as storage has gotten more and more popular, just as a general asset class, uh, it's it's definitely a lot easier to find lenders nowadays than I think it used to be. Uh, now you've got Live Oak and all these other people out there that are that really understand that storage asset class. So um, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. <laughs> it's changed a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. How did you sure, get yeah. financing?
0: Well, I ended up having a
2: friend at a local bank and I was able to convince him that it was a reasonable scenario and based on our relationship and a personal guarantee, they lent us the money to do it. And um, you know, the, the, the rest is history. So it worked out for him, It worked out for us. and it's a, been a great operating asset over that period of time. Now, just by way of backstory and interest, we have recently closed that facility and rented the entire property to Amazon because they rented, they rented an industrial building nearby that doesn't have enough parking for all their last mile delivery trucks. And they came to us and said, look, you've got 200 parking spaces here. We need them and we'll rent them from you. And you know, it was a better income proposal for the next seven years than the RV and boat storage. So we rented them the property and we can just reopen the RV storage in seven years if Amazon moves out.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. That's That's amazing. So yeah, you can have it for the right price. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, that's That's way cool, man.
2: So Demands uh, for
1: that too is huge. I mean, Amazon's gobbling up everything and this last mile problem is just... You know, this is a big problem that we see in retailers. And and it's amazing when you look at this industry overall. When I'm looking at boat and RV storage, I mean, RV sales have just been record just year after year after year, yet you see a lot more self-storage or a lot less self-storage. Like self-storage, it used to be very typical that you would have a self-storage facility with parking. Now, that is not true. People generally don't build parking with self storage anymore.
0: Well, and subdivisions no, and so forth are getting way more strict on what people can have and not have parked outside or in front of their houses or whatever it is. And that demand is just going up like crazy. And I'm sure Scott, you know more than than I would. Uh, demand wise, I'm sure you guys have just seen a massive increase in demand over these past uh, few years, and it's especially 2020 and 2021. I'm sure you guys are seeing a lot of demand. Well, the demand
2: is is crazy, like you have talked about, and in 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 addition, and especially in California, and I'm sure the the valley and in the Boise area is becoming the same scenario. Is master plan communities they don't allow vehicle they don't allow vehicles to be parked in the master plan communities, and in fact, in California, the overwhelming majority of municipalities have restrictions on parking RVs on public streets or even in your driveway. Mm. Right. So yeah. that, that creates additional demand for people to get those things taken care of and off site. And people are having to drive farther and farther to find parking. And we're seeing a you know, we're seeing a lot more deals that are exclusively R V and boat storage. You know, and people put in canopies and they're 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 doing concrete parking and they provide, you know, a dump station and a wash rack and ice and compressed air and, you know, miscellaneous products, merchandise to be sold in the office, like, you know, chemicals for your holding tank and, you know, different provisioning things. Now, what we try to do in our business is touch the vehicle as little as possible. So we don't work on people's vehicles for them. You know, we had a scenario at one facility, and I drove up to it, and this guy in this $2 million Prevost was driving out of the site. And I said, hey, how you doing? What's going on? He goes, I'm moving out. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. What happened? He goes, well, the guy that you have that wash our vehicles scratched my truck. And I said, well, hold on a sec. I told you very specifically when you hired him that he wasn't my guy. And he he had nothing to do with our company, but he came on and he washed vehicles for people. He said, look, it's on your property. You're responsible for it. I'm leaving. So that taught me that you don't want to have a lot of subcontractors on your property doing work, because if there's a customer service problem, you're going to get blamed for it, whether that guy is your employee or not.
0: 100%. And yeah.
2: <laughs> that was a that, that was a really interesting lesson because that guy paid me, you know, $900 a month to park his vehicle there. And I lost him. And it was disappointing. You know, I found somebody else over time, but you know, you hate losing those type of type of customers because you know, it, it's not it's not good for the business. And um, you know, mm-hmm. so we don't provide a lot of service at any of our facilities. For vehicles, you know, some guys will go buy groceries. You know, they'll have a list, and you can you can buy groceries for it. And and we, we want to be in the parking business and park people's vehicles for them. So we started looking out of state into Texas and some other spots to try to find some additional locations. And um, the demand is great across the country, and it's a uh, it's a niche within the self storage community that I think is starting to get a lot of attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense with that in, that increase in demand and uh, that increase in just that asset class like you're talking about, that, that value proposition that's uh, increasing and that expectation. Um, just kind of touching on that, when you're looking at these markets, when you're gauging demand, you're, you're, what exactly are you looking for? How do you identify a good property or not? Are you looking for bare land? Are you looking for existing facilities? Uh, what is it that you're really looking for when you're going into these markets?
2: We really try to buy existing facilities because I, I, I don't like to entitle properties because so many times the municipalities don't really understand what we do and they don't want the use within the area. And many, many times it's a conditional use permit rather than a permitted by right type of use. So you have, you know, you gotta go in front of the planning commission and the city council and do all of those things. So we like to do a value add scenario where we go and we we look at a property and we see that you know the owner has a a poor website, the he doesn't have a keypad access, he doesn't have a dump station, his surface is really not very good as far as the asphalt or gravel surface is concerned, and it creates a lot of dust, so everybody's vehicle is getting dirty. So, if you go in, you can do a little bit of work on the surface and the striping and the delineation and weed abatement and you know create a much more secure environment with a keypad access and cameras and a fully um, staffed office where people, if they have a question, they can go in and do it. I mean it's very, very similar to a value add self storage proposition. And mm-hmm. you go and yeah. you do all of those things and people see, the improvement and they are not as resistant to the rental increases (laughs) that you're going to give them after you finish those improvements. I mean, you know, it's the same type of deal and you try to do some amenities like site lighting, dump station, wash area, and those type of things that are really valuable to your tenants. And then access, you know, the more with security, you know, I always like to have a period of time in the facility when no one is to be there. So if it's 10 o'clock to five o'clock, you know, 11 to six, whatever it is, there's a period of time where if the motion sensors go off, that means there's somebody there that's not supposed to be. So you can really keep Mm -hmm. a good handle on the security because you do end up getting a little bit of um, theft with regards to this because there are things that have perceived value inside of these units and every once in a while, you know, a couple times a year, you'll have some sort of a, a burglary that goes on inside the mm. site, regardless of where it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that uh, that totally makes sense. That's an industry uh, norm, I think. Is there anything in specific that, uh, just for any listeners out there, that uh, people target when they're going in to, to try to steal things that they could kind of help educate their tenants on?
2: Um what we have found aj over time is that the the guys that come in and take stuff don't realize that you can't transfer a tv that's in an rv to your house it runs <laughs> on a different type of power it has an antenna that is not self included you know i mean it, and unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately, people go in and steal stuff out of RVs thinking they can use it in their home and they actually can't. So every once in a while there'll be a, a you know, a motorcycle taken out of a, a toy box type trailer or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And that, look, it's not to say that it hasn't happened where someone has come in and hitched up a rig and stolen a whole unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that does happen once in a while. So we really try to push, People to put either wheel locks or hitch locks on their vehicle, which we sell at the office.
1: Gotcha. Now, now indoor storage, obviously, indoor parking and valet reduces that dramatically. And you were mentioning before the spread and cost. You generally see valet storage versus uh, self park. Uh, maybe outdoor storage is um, about fifty percent higher in revenue.
2: Fifty to hundred percent higher.
1: Fifty to hundred yeah, percent it, higher. It, it, wow, it, it's
2: quite a bit. It's quite a bit higher. Depending on you know, depending on where you are and and what you have, it's it's uh, it's quite a bit
1: more. And, and what's the difference know, clearly, in expense ratio?
2: You know, I, I don't have a a, a number to give you over the top of that, off the top of my head, you know, I, I know what my yeah, expenses are, but it's
1: not a 50% uh, difference in obviously expense or a hundred, not even close to obviously a hundred percent as a ratio of revenue. So that's, you know, huge, on well, the profit it's a, but, it's,
2: but it's a lot more, AJ. I mean, if, yeah, if so we you look employees. at our, if, if we look at our property in Norwalk, you know, we have 600 tenants, they're all valet tenants. We have a site manager that is in the office and you know takes all the calls and moves them in, moves them out, and takes payments and all those things. And then there's three guys that are there every day moving vehicles.
1: So you have so you have four full time employees that are there every at, day, at, right? Wow so that that is a big labor cost.
2: And you know and that mm-hmm. property does 150,000 a month in revenue. Yeah.
1: So yeah, you know, yeah, that's it's incredible. a lot
2: it's a lot of revenue. Um but it's that, yeah. a lot of cost. I mean that's four guys every single day. Not well, you know we're yeah. not open on Sundays. And then we stagger yeah. them so we don't have, you know, four guys every on site at the same time. One guy comes in on Saturday and is off Sunday, Monday, et cetera. but Um, you know, it's a very, it, it is labor intensive to do that valet thing. So you do that in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And, you know, we have that site in Sacramento and, you know, there, there are a couple of really cool facilities in Dallas that, you know, we've been chasing after that, you know, you could, you could do that same type of scenario. in, but, you know, looking at the more likely group that would want to do an RV and boat storage they're going to find a site in a more rural place like Boise and you're going to kind of go into the outskirts and grade and pave and fence and light and put in a mobile modular trailer and stripe it for outdoor self park and it's a great way to you know hold property but what we have found is that really the uses become 20 year uses you know, you, you don't do it for three years, and then all of a sudden you put an apartment building on it. It just doesn't yeah. you know, it just doesn't happen that way. But you know, there there are a lot of opportunities in markets. I was talking to a, a partner of ours in Virginia, and we're looking at doing a deal in Richmond, and it would need to be covered because of the you know the weather conditions that they have there. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're looking at it, and there's a lot of access to recreation areas in Richmond that would drive demand in in a lot of vehicles being in the area. And uh, you can expand into those type of markets.
0: Gotcha. Kind of touching on that, I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of where these questions on uh, RV and boat storage and just outdoor storage in general has come from are people that do have acreage or some some kind of land in the family or they have it themselves and they want to get into storage but they're not really sure uh, how to make sense of you know well if I have this much land can I you know just make Outdoor storage on this and then parking and everything. Um, What does the process look like for the land preparation? I know you kind of touched on this a little bit uh, earlier. You kind of grazed over it a little, but uh, as far as if I had some land, um, let's just say it was, I don't know, let's say five to 10 acres of land. What would the process look like to get that land ready? And obviously, I'm, I'm sure there's differences between municipalities and, and code and things like that. But generally, what do you need to do and how do you get that land ready uh, for that asset?
2: Well, since we do most of our stuff in California, you know, we have certain requirements that we can't get around. So you mm-hmm. have, you know, you're going to grade the property and then fence it and then. You know, once you grade a piece of property, you have a drainage scenario that you have to watch out for. So you have to figure out what to do with the storm water. And, you know, does it go into a retention pond and through a biofilter into a storm drain of some sort? Let's just assume that's the case. So you've got a retention pond, you're going to sheet flow into that um, retention pond. Then you've got your perimeter fencing. Then you want a surface that can accept some sort of paint so you can stripe it for an outdoor self-park facility. You know, you want to have a dump station, so you need a connection to a sewer. We usually use mobile modular trailers as the office with the restroom in the modular trailer, so you need another sewer connection there. You need some power to power the controlled access as well as the security and the computer in the office. And that's essentially, you know, that's essentially done. And we use all the same property management systems, PTI security keypad scenario that you would in self storage to create the experience. So you have a nice customer experience by having a keypad access. You have the feeling of security. You can go into the office. You can pay your bill. You can, you can do it touchless off your mobile device. You know, you even can have a Q code and, you know, get in and out of the facility with. With you know, with your with your handheld device, and you know, it's very similar to the self storage um, management and customer experience. And then you drive onto the property and you go to your assigned space and you park. And it would really be up to the individual municipality what sort of improvements they would require. We you know we've been lucky and been able to put up chain link fence we've had other cases where we have put up several million dollars worth of masonry block wall because the city's required a certain amount of screening from um, the public for some reason I don't know why they need to mm-hmm. feel like you have to screen these things but you know you know how cities are right um, so it 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 is subject to each individual municipality what level of improvement so you know in today's you know I, I recently did a ten acre site and was about three million dollars worth of improvements to improve the site and you on a on a thumbnail you get about sixty five units to the acre so ten acre site, six hundred and fifty units, three million dollars to build it depending on what you paid to buy it you know if you can average you know, then it depends on what the rates are in the area, and then you can go through the, your your income and expense scenario to figure out what your returns are. But in today's underwriting, you're probably looking to build to a eight or a nine um, in order to get it financed.
0: Mm. Gotcha. No, yeah, that's that's a huge, uh, huge amount of value there for a lot of listeners, for sure, uh, because that's... Again, so many of these people, they just have this land sitting there and they're like, well, I don't have you know a ton of money, but maybe I could just get into some outdoor storage and have some parking out there and throw people out there and make some extra money. And like you said, I think that's a really good point that you brought up, Scott, is that idea that a lot of people have been doing this as just kind of like this temporary holding strategy, whereas- Yeah, land holding. Yeah, if you really start looking at this as its own- niche asset within the storage industry. Uh I mean there's huge opportunity there to increase that
1: value proposition. And well and uh, that's it, awesome. You know, it's interesting to me also the aspect of where what they store how that's changed. Um I've seen a few that are very specialty. There's one down in um oh Southern California down there. Um close to Coronado actually. And it's like a high end car storage it's basically like a luxury car storage it's multi floor I believe it's valet but it's a place that stores everything from like antique cars to nice Lamborghinis um that was something I'd never seen before and I looked at yeah. that property and I thought man they you know they were full they were hundred percent full and I thought you're doing very well <laughs> Uh, there
2: there are a number of those places, and, you know, I think Beverly Hills, Newport Beach, Coronado, you know, some of the higher-end neighborhoods, you're going to have pretty small facilities where guys might be storing, you know, 50 to 150 vehicles. And, you know, they've got these smaller buildings in there, and they're able to do that. A lot of guys have lifts that they put in. We own now about 150 lifts at our various indoor facilities where we stack the cars. So we'll have, you know, these lifts in there and then you know you get a second floor by having the lift have the vehicle, you know, one one up one down. And we've actually had a lot of success in some of our more dense the pop- populated areas in adding the additional spaces by installing the lifts, you know, a lot of those lifts are are meant to be outside. So you could put a lift outside and stack vehicles in, you know, if you have a more um, suburban type of location, you know, you might be able to put in a couple of lifts and stack four vehicles where you had two. Hmm. And, you know, no, and a lot of guys are putting them inside storage units and they put, you know, several vehicles inside a storage unit. You obviously need some clear height in order to, yeah. to do that. But, you know, the down and dirty easily um, copied scenario is the outdoor self-parking scenario. You know there is a specialty scenario to this business with indoor and outdoor valet storage and stacking vehicles and classic car storage and all of that type of stuff. But that's that's really a niche within a niche. Yeah, what, yeah. What the majority of what the majority of self storage guys are interested in say, look, I've got two acres of expansion land, and I'm not doing anything with it how can I make that into an income producing property? And, you know, you can put a fence up, you can put a surface down, you can make sure that it drains and adheres to all the requirements for drainage and stormwater and end up having a long-term income base that dovetails onto your existing business. And then you don't have all the additional operating expenses because you already have a manager on site. You already have, you know, tenant hummingbird running your property management system. You already have, you know, um, tenant running your website, and hosting your website, doing your internet marketing. And, you know, you're a member of the self-storage association and you've got all the great things going on on your property and you add this thing and it's accretive. It's adding to your income until such time as you either build it out or you get addicted to that income. And it's just like, shoot, I'm going to keep this. So you know, we're
1: looking at a property, we're doing that right now. We got a property under contract that has probably a half an acre, maybe an acre alongside of it, which we're not – I have no plans of expanding that. Like we would we would take it over, we'd buy it, but um, it's not like we'd immediately expand or anything. And the first thing I thought, just go in, gravel it, put some signs up, um, plot it out, and start renting it out. And like you said, our expense ratio obviously – doesn't change at all we're still doing the same thing we are but that is a huge value add to that property let's say you fit in you know I don't know 30 40 spots into an acre or whatever that amount is and you're selling them at 50 to 100 bucks a spot for outdoor parking that was originally just vacant um that can uh, that goes straight to the bottom line that goes to your NOI and uh, that's a simple value add that I can build in, um, while everything else is, is running the exact same way.
2: So if you had a, if you had a 300 space self-storage facility and you had a hundred spaces of RV and that those hundred spaces were making a hundred bucks a piece, right? That's, is that $10,000 a month? Yeah. Right. right about hundred times a hundred. Yeah. Yep. And you then decide to sell the property the buyer is not going to say, well, I'm only going to pay you an eight cap on the RV income and a five and a half cap on the self-storage income because I can't pay you a five and a half on the self, on the RV income because there's no capital improvements associated. You're going to say, look, here's the income and a hundred and, you know, 120,000 a year of that is from my RV and boat storage facility, but I'm selling it to you at a five and a half cap. I don't care whether you like it or not. And people buy it like that. They're not not—they're not taking out that parking income from your cap rate on your capital improved self-storage facility. So it's a huge rise in your value for very little effort. No,
1: that's Africa. a great point. Very little effort. For, you know, for, and two, I know a lot of people there. that does it backwards. They start out with that, and then they're going to build storage on as they go. Um, But we have, kind of like you were mentioned before, we have someone in one of our markets that – That was the original plan, but it was too profitable, so they never built storage because they were (laughs) like, well, hold on. Why am I doing that? I'm just going to keep this because once they ran the numbers, they'd had to clear out the spot, lose all the income for however long, a year or whatever that, that time frame takes to get that storage facility built. Then they have a whatever, couple year fill up. And then when they were looking at their bottom line, how much more they would make all of a sudden, they go. Well, it's going to be years more before I make up just what I even <laughs> lost on the previous years. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense at all, because if you include the rate of increase that I can get on my revenue existing, the difference was um, marginal, and I was shocked when I saw it and looked at the numbers because they were right. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, is that we find that commercial tenants are very very profitable at storage facilities they they stay longer they aren't really impacted as much by increased rent rental increases and if you add parking to your facility you you may see a rise in commercial tenants because you have a a guy who needs to park his work truck, or his flatbed trailer, or his piece of equipment—that you know—you get landscape guys and painting and contractors mm-hmm. and all these people that need, you know, and utilize self-storage a lot. And all of a sudden, if they can park their their two vehicles at your facility as well, it is a boon to the commercial tenant business.
1: We do that a lot. We did that in our first facility that we built with specific. It was at enclosed um, parking and people could park RVs, different things like that. But we had a lot of commercial tenants that would come and park uh, their trucks and everything else in those spots. And sure enough, they rented units. So the net effect for us was huge because, like you said, they're prof- those are profitable tenants to have. And they rented out more spaces. In fact, as they grew, they just kept renting spaces. And so, you know, we had some of them that were like, wow, you've rented out, you know, five 10 by 20s and a massive, two massive indoor parking spaces. And that's all from one tenant that's been now with us for years. And they don't complain when they get price increases or anything else. So the long term Mm -hmm. value of that tenant um, is massive to us.
2: Well, one of the things to keep in mind is that the, um, mantra of 80% of your tenants come from three mile radius in self-storage. You'll find that your radius of customer in an RV and boat storage facility is more like 20 miles.
0: Wow. And Interesting. Yeah, that is you get a lot more you get a lot,
2: you know, and people are have different demands for location because a guy may want his RV parked next to his business rather than next to his house because he likes to leave his. Day to day driver. At the facility when he picks up the RV to take it home and go on a trip with his family. So. You know, you you, you have a, a, a bigger area to draw from with regards to RV and boat storage, and you can prove that by kind of looking at the zip code analysis within some of well, these that's facilities. How,
1: you know, that's how you think about it. Some of our commercial tenants, they were more focused on it being central to the valley than they were next to their offices because they said, well, we've got people coming from all over. So we need all these vehicles and everything to be central. So even though it was in another city away from where their offices were, based upon their operations, their geographic range in which their business runs, it was much more central. And I always found that very, very interesting. So to one person, you thought, man, you're driving a long ways to get to these cars and everything else. But when they plotted it out based upon their service and where their people are coming from to go into work, everything else, it was actually... Way more central to their operations, and uh, yeah. um, th- that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, it is, and I think um, the other thing that we have found <laughs> is that it could be very helpful to be near near nearby to uh, RV dealers. You know, if, yes. if you w- we sense. have a couple, yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we ha- we have a couple locations that are very close to RV. Dealer malls where there are multiple RV dealers located in the same place, and you know, I often go down and hand out business cards. And um, before the the uh, advent of the internet marketing to the level that we have today, you know, I would go down and give fifty hundred dollar bills to the salesman and a business card and say, you know, hey, you know, send me your guys. And we would get a lot of referrals from the local RV dealers to our facilities. And today's internet marketing, you don't really need to do that as much because people just find you. Yeah. If you give, give $100 to your, Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're giving it to, to Google instead. But, uh, you know, that 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 is still a good location to be near RV dealers, to be near... Um, resort type of locations, whether it be the ocean, lakes, mountains, whatever. Yes. And uh, and uh, and that kind of thing.
1: Well, what what would your advice be to somebody starting out and they're looking at this industry? They're saying, "Hey, I would love to." There's a lake next to our house that gets a lot of you know people. I'd love to put an outdoor boat. Parking or an RV parking, and they're trying to get into the boat and RV parking space. What would you suggest, and what would you tell somebody just looking at it trying to get in?
2: Well, in in the scenario that you described, the first thing you would want to do is find out where people are currently parking their vehicles. And if there's a couple of locations, then you drive down to them and you say, Hey, I, I want to rent a space. And the guy says, yeah, no way. You know, I haven't had a vacancy in here in three years and I've got a waiting list of 20 people. And, you know, this is all the same old adage that we've all worked on over these years is you, you know, you go to the locations and you find out what the demand is. And then if it looks like it's unfulfilled, you know, then you start looking for a location where you can do it. And the thing that, I've really focused on the last number of years is that, you know, I'm a user of real estate. I used to be a speculator and a developer of real estate, but now I don't like taking entitlement risk. So I would find, I would then try to find a property that has the zoning and the use to allow me to build a facility. And I Mm -hmm. think you want to have a minimum of three acres because 65 to the acre on three acres is, you know, 195 spaces or whatever. And that's a critical mass that you can work with. It's you know, if it's a standalone RV and boat facility, you don't want it to be too small because you just won't hit a critical mass where you really can pay your operating expense. Because as you and I know, AJ, there's fixed costs. You know, you're going to be paying you know, $290 a month for your property management system and you're gonna be paying X amount of dollars for your website and your internet marketing and your site insurance and your office and your computer and your internet and your electricity and all that stuff is kind of fixed costs and you need to have a, a certain massing in order to be able to make money. So you don't want it to be too small unless it's part of an existing facility. So, if you have an existing facility that has a certain amount of land available to expand on, you still do the same thing. You kind of look around and find out what the demand for and the supply is of parking spaces. And if it appears that there's a need, then you fill it. You find a site or you expand your site and get some parking on there. And then, you know, we haven't talked much about layout. And how wide do the aisles need to be? How long and wide do the spaces need to be? So,
1: what you know, do you if see you have... What, what is your suggestion?
2: Well, you, you need to kind of figure out what type of vehicles you're going to park. So let's say you're near the mountains and the overwhelmingly or the overwhelming majority of vehicles that have sold in this last RV rush of sales are trailerables. So trailers take more room to maneuver than do motorhomes. Motorhomes can turn better. You know, if you have a F450 dually pickup truck and a triple axle fifth wheel trailer, you're gonna need a 32 foot aisle and a 12 to 13 foot wide space to be able to park that thing into it. And then, you know, when it comes to layout, so you, you know, in that description I just gave you, you have a 32 foot wide aisle. And then you want to angle the spaces at 60 degrees and you want to angle them in the direction. So when the guy is pulling past the space to back in, that he's looking in his driver's side mirror. Because that's the way people like to back up is in their driver's side. Because in the off side, it's more difficult to figure out your range. So that's a little you know, a little secret to the yeah, deal is you, yeah. you angle them at sixty degrees and you angle them so that when the guy drives in to park a trailer he's looking into his driver's side mirror to make, to park. Whereas a motor would go the opposite direction. he would go around and then come back in the opposite direction of the, of the pickup truck I just mentioned. And he would pull straight in and then probably back out when he leaves on his trip, because you're tired when you come home and the guy just says, screw it. I don't need to back in. I'll just pull, pull in straight.
1: So you really got to understand that usage. You got to understand what's coming in there, why they're using it, how they're using it. And this can change over time, obviously. Do you separate the facility out for different types of usage and access?
2: Absolutely. You know, you'll have an area where you put the 40s. You'll have an area where you, you'll you do 40-foot pull-throughs because the pull-through scenario is a premium whether it's a trailer or a motorhome if you can pull through oh my gosh it makes your life so easy instead of having to back in but obviously in a so what we do a lot of times is you have the smaller units on the perimeter the 15 20 25 30 foot spaces and then on the interior aisles you put your 35s and 40s. And to the, depending on how much land you have, you, know, you can do one 40-foot wide pull-through aisle, and those will be premium spots. I mean, guys will pay more to be in those particular spaces because they're easier to get in and out of. So you have the same scenario like you do in self-storage where you have the standard unit, you have the discount unit, and you have the premium unit. We use the same scenario and I in RV and boat storage because you know if you have the best pull through right at the entry gate that should probably be a premium spot and that's going to be more expensive than the one all the way in the back. But as you know when you fill up the premium standard discount thing changes around but when you first open you know you want to say, look, you can have this one in front for one hundred and fifty. The one in the back is one hundred and twenty-five. Which one do you want?
1: Yes. Exactly. Huh. Well, I mean, Scott, this is just amazing information. There's so much to unpack here. I <laughs> mean, I other keep other thinking, thing, oh, there's
2: one. Other, there's one other thing yeah. I got to tell you. I got to tell you. Yeah. Because a lot of people, a lot of people love these canopies, right?
1: Yeah. And yeah. Yeah.
2: The column of the canopy, a rid, you know, and so guys would put them twelve feet apart, right? But they would design it with an ex, with a above ground footing that was eighteen inches in diameter. So that means there's six inches of uh-huh. concrete on each side of the of the column, and there's two columns yes. per space. So you lo- you lost a foot, and some guys would put them at ten. Thinking they had ten foot wide spaces. But they had these footings that were six and they were only nine feet wide. So, you know, a lot of guys like the canopies and a lot of guys want to build these canopies, but you have to have it be a footing in the ground. So that you only have the column only above ground and it's only, you know, a six inch column. But that's And you gotta be also
1: (laughs) looking at the radius in which it has to turn to get in there. So, depending yeah. on how deep it is, how wide that swing in that area from the other building coming into those two columns, um, that can be a, a really, really tricky. And you build, I mean, that's such a simple example that you just gave of how you miss that one thing and you can really basically eliminate a huge, um, base of tenants that are supposed to use that in fact you could eliminate probably the primary people that you were building it for <laughs> exactly. yeah
2: it's a it can really be a problem and I think that for the most part the canopy builders have solved that problem by not letting people do it and you know Baja construction mm-hmm. is someone that does a lot of the canopies and they're really good but Mako and um, Kiwi, are really getting into the canopy business and they're starting to really understand what's going on with that. And uh, so the nice thing is, is there's some competition in that market if uh, if you're a canopy-type site. You know, I've, I've been looking at this site in Texas, and it's a nice big facility kind of in the middle of a master plan community, and part of it is covered, and you know, a big chunk is uncovered, but, you know, they have those hailstorms in, in Texas,
1: mm. and you'd
2: hate to... You know, you'd hate to have a lot of outdoor parking because you know the vehicles yeah. and the windshields can get so nailed with that hail. Yeah, but it, yeah, you, that, know, you, you know. really got to you you really got to do the research in each one of these markets that you look in to find out what is the best way to go on how to do these things. Yeah,
1: that no, makes that's, sense. That's great advice. Well, where can people find out more about you or 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 reach out to you? Um, this is once once again, it is such a desirable niche within self storage, and there's just so there's so few people that have done it um, as well as and been as successful at it as you. Um, do you have a site people could go to to learn more?
2: We um, we have a flag or a brand, um, RV Storage Depot, that has a pretty good presence on um, the internet. We also have a corporate website. Um, ramsardevco.com, and there's some information on us in there. And I, I speak to a lot of people all the time. You know, I'm, I'm involved in store local and, and tenant, and I'm on the board of the California Self-Storage Association. So we get a lot of calls and a lot of people asking questions, and I'm happy to speak to anybody at any time about it. So be sure to uh, let people know, and I'm happy to uh, share. That's the best thing about the self-storage industry. Is that there's really yeah. a great camaraderie and a sharing of information um, that really makes the industry a lot of fun. I mean, that's how I got to know you, and yes. uh, you know, I think we're really lucky to be in this business because there is such a great partnership throughout the whole thing.
1: You know, I couldn't agree more. It's so funny when people talk about it, and I and I own other companies and in other industries, and it's not the same. And when I look at it, you know, for us, it's like, you know, if one storage operator does good, the other one at least has the potential to do good, too. But you find when a market gets ruined by bad storage operators, everybody suffers. So it's not in anyone's benefit for a market to suffer, right? The better we can all do, the better the industry will grow. Um, And that is a cool thing about this industry. So, well, thank you. We'll put those in there, uh, the show notes, so you guys can uh, check it out. It'll also be on our website. But Scott, once again thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time and how open you've been in the information you've shared.
2: Well, awesome. I really enjoyed it, AJ and Connor. It was nice meeting you and talking to you again. And uh, I look forward to seeing you out there.
1: Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks, Scott.